I'm going to look this evening at Psalm 88. Uh, if you would turn there with me, we'll read the psalm in its entirety. Psalm 88. Beloved, the grass withers and the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, is eternal and it abides forever, and so it is worthy of our perfect and undivided attention. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Leonoth, a maskal of Heman, the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that can lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning, or this evening. Our gracious God, uh, you know us, you know our fickle hearts, you know that we fear your truth as much as we desire it, that we are as likely to run from it as we are to it. You know that we can suppress your glorious truth without a second thought. And so our confidence this evening as we draw near to your word is that you are greater than our fears and that you are not bound by our sin and that your word gives freedom to those who are in bondage. So may we not just believe these things, but may we witness them this evening. Even now, as we open your word, we pray. Amen. Psalm 88 uh, is a lament. Now, laments are not complaints, and complaints are not laments. Uh, complaints believe that what is going on is not fair, that you deserve better, that Others have failed you, and that God ultimately has failed you. That's what complaints are. Laments are a little bit different. 
but it's an important difference. Laments still believe that things are not the way they ought to be, the way they're meant to be. Laments, without trying to assign blame, acknowledge, acknowledge that what is going on is hard, that it's broken. So, so complaints are angry, laments are sad. Complaints point fingers, laments weep. Complaints seek vindication, and laments seek restoration. Americans, since it's just us this evening, we can be honest, we Americans, we're good at complaining. Uh, and terrible, absolutely terrible at lamenting. Uh, we whine, we complain, uh, we threaten lawsuits, or even worse, negative online reviews. <laughs> but when life is hard, when tragedy comes, we don't know how to respond. What do we do as Americans? Oh, we distract ourselves? We hide? We don't know how to cry. We don't know how to weep. We don't know how to lament. And so we, we short circus, we short circus, I'm not even sure that's a word. We short circuit uh, a process that God designed for us to go through on the road to healing. When we don't lament, we don't deal with life's pains, and we don't deal with them, they remain raw, and they remain unhealed. And so we need to learn to lament. And Psalm 88 could very well be the best training manual in existence on how to lament. This evening, as we look at it, I, I really just want to have one main point. I'll, I'll break it into three smaller ones. But the main point is this. Lamenting, lamenting is the appropriate response of hope. It's the appropriate response of hope to a broken world. And every part of that is important. So what I want to do is I want to start by... by uh, looking at this psalm, and, and we'll see through it the constant presence of darkness in it, and we'll talk about that. We'll look at life in the darkness. Then we'll ask, do we have any companions in the darkness? And then finally, I would like to, to finish our time by seeing where we find hope in the darkness. So we'll look at life in the darkness, companions in the darkness, and hope in the darkness. That's our, our plan this evening. The psalmist uh, begs for help, and yet help never comes. We, we read at the beginning, day after day, night after night, he keeps calling out, crying for relief, verse 1. He begs God to listen and to answer, verse 2. But as of yet, as of, as of the writing of the psalm, there is no answer yet. The prayers have gone without God's relief. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into years. And the psalmist still needs help, he still needs rescue, and yet it hasn't come. 
Uh, there's an old expression that insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And it seems like maybe the psalmist is insane because day after day, night after night, every day he wakes up, goes to bed, doing the same thing. He calls out in prayer, verse 9. And he can't make sense out of God's refusal to intervene. And so in verse 10, he starts to ask, what good is it if I die, Lord? Do the departed raise up and praise you? If everyone who loves you dies, who's going to worship you and honor you? Do those who have passed speak of God's character, verse 11? And you sense the frustration and the struggle to make sense out of this pain and his suffering and out of God's continued silence in the midst of it. But he continues to cry out. Every morning, he greets the new day with the same prayer that he prayed the day before. One of my uh, professors in seminary uh, taught us that it's, it's not just important to see what is said, but is what is unsaid. What are the other options? Many psalms like this include a confession of sin and a request for forgiveness. Many acknowledge in the midst of struggles and trials, I brought this upon myself, but have mercy on me. But did you notice no such confession takes place in the psalm? And that just compounds the confusion. What, why? What have I done? I don't even know what to repent for. And yet God doesn't give him an answer. There are no answers. There's just silence. Silence and darkness and sleepless nights. Things don't add up. The psalmist knows that, that however things are supposed to be, this isn't it. Something is terribly broken. So broken, in fact, that the line between life and death for the psalmist start to become blurred. He says that, that his life draws near to Sheol, that is, to the grave, verse 3. Uh, he says in verse 4 that he's already being counted among those who have gone down to the grave, drained of all life and strength. It's like he's uh, already checked into the local graveyard uh, a little bit early even if he isn't dead yet, he might as well be. Because he feels like he has more in, in common with the residents of that local graveyard than he does with everybody else in his life. His life is so hard and so wretched that the living don't want to have anything to do with him because he's one of those people that sucks all the life out of a room. And so no one has time for him like one already lying six feet under, he feels like he is existing in total darkness, verse 6. And then in the next verse, in verse 7, comes the real indictment. He sees all of this as God's fault, as God's wrath. Dropping down to verse 14, he believes that God has cast him out, that God has hid his face from him. 
that it's God's terrors that he's enduring. And so it's just too much. It's too overwhelming. He, he, he repeatedly says he feels like he's drowning. The waves are crashing over his head. Life's pains are like one wave after another, pounding against him, trying to take him down, trying to, to, to take all the strength out of him until he gives up. And as soon as he manages to get his head back up above the water, another wave pounds him. Maybe he can hold on for another day, another hour. But eventually, his strength will run out. Eventually, the waves will be more than he can bear. If he's not dead yet, he's close. And that line is becoming harder and harder and harder for him to distinguish. I don't think it would be hard to imagine Joseph praying this prayer or something like it when he was suffering in Egypt. After all, he had been thrown in a pit, not a metaphorical one like in this psalm, but a real pit by his own brothers. Not for any failing on his part, but just simply because of petty jealousy. He he did nothing to bring that on himself. After that, he was sold into slavery. Things started to look up, only to be lied about by Potiphar's wife and then cast into prison. There he sat in darkness, not for weeks, not for months, but for years. All the time wondering in in the darkness of that prison, why? What, What have I done? I'm no criminal. How he must have prayed for release day and night and how he must have wondered why. What is God's plan in this? What is God doing? And yet never been able to make sense. But of course, you have your own darkness. I don't know what that is in your life. You do. It could be antagonism you face for your faith. Your friends laugh at you. They no longer invite you out because they don't want to be reminded about the God they are pushing away, and that's what you do. Maybe your family makes exaggerated questions about propriety. Is this okay? Every time they do anything, simply desiring to mock your your hope to please your own God. You feel like you're always the odd man out, the unwelcome guest. Perhaps your darkness is abandonment. A parent who left, or or might as well have. A spouse who called it quits and walked away. Could be death. The loss of a loved one, whether that's a parent or a child, born or unborn. Could be the loss of a sibling, a friend, or that spouse who promised to grow old with you. Or maybe it's your own health. Illness, disease came in and and robbed you of your vibrancy, and now you deal with chronic pain, unable to enjoy your hobbies. Your mind is slipping, and there's nothing you can do to push back that darkness. Or the cancer is untreatable, and you 
The question is no longer, will it claim your life, but when? Maybe your darkness is as simple as disappointment. You had dreams. You had expectations. And those expectations are dying, they're disappearing, and you feel like, you feel like someone has died, but you think, that's silly. Who grieves for something that never was? But when you're alone, you admit that you do. And like the psalmist, you feel increasingly alone, and, and, you, and your friends shun you because they don't know what to do with your pain. You feel like you're in a prison, in solitary confinement. People don't know what to say, so they, they just keep their distance. They avoid you because your suffering makes them feel uncomfortable. And eventually you cry out like verse 18 does. My companions have become darkness. It's interesting uh, that the Hebrew here is tough to translate. It, it literally says, my companions, darkness. Uh, and it's not that the, his companions have gone dark. It, it's more that darkness is the only one who stuck around <laughs> to keep him company. Darkness is my only companion. And we know where the mind goes, don't we, at, at times like that. God, do you see what's going on? Do you understand everything I'm going through? And God, do you care? To answer that question, I, I think we need to let the, the words of, of Hebrews 4 sink in. There we read, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think sometimes we, we read this passage and we think that Jesus underwent the, uh, the same temptations that we did. Temptations like, like taking the easy road, cheating on your taxes, uh, shading the truth to make things easier, or, or taking something that doesn't belong to you. Or, or simply to, to blow up in anger and, and yell at somebody who doesn't deserve it and so on. We, we accept that Jesus endured these, but, but we tend to reserve life's darkest struggles for ourselves and tell ourselves that he doesn't, he doesn't understand those. And so we put things that test our faith into a different category. We think that those, those life-sucking realities that make us want to call it quits, that, that make us want to do something or anything that will end the pain, we think that these somehow did not affect our Lord. Simply put, we, we don't believe that when Hebrew says everything, it means everything. But the Bible won't let us get away with that. Because our Lord knew what it meant to be abandoned by his friends. He knew what it was to be, be betrayed with a kiss. 
He knew what it was to have his closest friend deny even knowing him in his darkest hour. And he knew what it was like in that hour to walk a long, painful road alone. He knew the darkness well, and I don't just mean metaphorical darkness. His pain was so great that the sun itself hid its face from him while he was on the cross. He knew what it was like to be abandoned by his own father. He knew what it was like to pray and not have it answered. And he knew what it was like for that line between life and death to grow fainter and fainter until it was nothing and disappeared altogether. Until he was let down from the cross and buried in a dark tomb. There is nothing in Psalm 88 that our Lord did not endure in full measure. His life on this earth was full of hardship, pain, and sorrow. So Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He knew the darkness. He lamented the darkness with loud cries and with tears. And none of that suggests a lack of trust. Please, when a friend is crying, never say, you just have to believe, as if the tears were a lack of trust. None of our Lord's tears suggest anything lacking in him. Lamenting is not weakness. Quite the opposite. Lamenting acknowledges that things are not the way they're supposed to be. It acknowledges that that things are broken. Jesus created the world. He knew what it was supposed to be because he was there and he designed it. And when he came into this world, it was not what he designed. It was not what he created. If it had been, he would not have needed to come. He came because the world was broken. He, he, he came because sin had corrupted everything. Because darkness once again covered the earth. And he came to allow that darkness, death, and even the grave to consume him. Because that was the only way to rescue us from our own wrath and curse. From his wrath and curse for our own sin. There was no way for him to save us and not experience the mess that this world had become. He couldn't, there was no way. If he wanted to save us, he had to endure the ugliness, the darkness, the brokenness of this world. And so he experienced persecution 
He experienced abandonment. He experienced loss and illness and death and disappointment. He took it all on himself so that he could deliver us from it. In other words, our our, our Lord didn't love us from a safe distance. He, He experienced every reality in Psalm 88 so that he could be, as verse 1 so wonderfully puts it, the God of our salvation. You see who it's addressed to? The God of our salvation, verse 1. He experienced the brokenness of the psalm so that he might rescue us from it. And in so doing, he answered the questions of verses 10 through 12. Yes, God does work wonders for the dead. (laughs) Yes, they do rise up to praise him. Because of Jesus, darkness and the grave don't have the last word. Because of Jesus, the grave has lost its victory and death has lost its sting. Because of Jesus, the dead will be raised up on the last day and they will dwell in a land where there is no darkness and there is no night. Revelation 22.5 says that. He taught me Revelation in seminary. But none of that future glory, none of that that confidence in the resurrection means we shouldn't lament the brokenness of this world. Jesus knew full well how everything would end. He knew full well that he would be raised on the third day. He told it to his disciples repeatedly. And yet he still cried out. He still wept tears. He still lamented. He still acknowledged that this this was not how things are supposed to be, that, that things are broken, terribly so. And beloved, we need to learn to do the same. One of the things that makes Psalm 88 so helpful um, is what makes it different. There are many psalms that include laments. That's not what's unique about Psalm 88. What's unique about Psalm 88 is it has no resolution. Did you notice how it ends? Darkness is my only companion, and that's it. There's nothing more. You, You turn the page, you're looking for the rest, and it's not there. And it's as if the psalm invites us to keep waiting, to keep looking, and to keep praying. We need psalms like this. Because life is not a sitcom. Uh, uh, Resolutions don't happen in half an hour. Sometimes we wait years. And sometimes this side of eternity never sees resolution. And the reality is we, we, we deal with suffering, with, with deep suffering, and it makes us question God's love. And we ask, how could God let, let this happen to someone he loves? Where's the hope? Where's the meaning? We question whether, whether he is with us in the midst of it, and if he understands. And if he does, why is there no respite? When we deal with that, it doesn't mean that, that there will never be restoration. 
but we have to wrestle with the reality that it might not be quick. Think of those years of waiting while Joseph was in jail. How long do you think it was until he just stopped measuring time? (laughs) So why? Why does God make us wait? And what are we supposed to do while we wait? If I could be so bold, I think we need to learn to lament. We need to learn to lament because our God laments. Because this world is not what it should be. It's it's broken, and that should grieve us. It should make us weep. It should make us lament. If, If God's response is to lament, it should be our response as well. And lamenting itself is is actually healing. Because lamenting forces us to confess that things could be better, that things should be better. Because lamenting confesses all that is true because God is good. And so lamenting confesses the goodness of God's creation and the goodness of creation's God. Some people think it lamenting shows weakness or lack of faith. As I said earlier, we know that's not true because Jesus lamented and he was sinless. I think lamenting is actually a demonstration of faith. Christians talk a lot about suffering, and that's okay. The Bible talks a lot about suffering. But I think one of the dangers of doing that is to start to think that, that, that suffering is just natural. That it's just a part of nature and to be expected. And, and, and if that's true, we ask ourselves, well, why lament what's natural? I don't lament gravity. <laughs> In other words, a refusal to lament means thinking that the brokenness of this world is intentional and natural and part of God's created design. That this is how it should be. Refusing to lament denies the goodness of God's creation as it was created. And and when we move too quickly from lamenting to hope, we, we miss this. And we might, we might fail to plumb how, how deep the suffering really is and how wrong it is. When my, when my grandfather passed away, all my grandma wanted to do was talk about him. And of course, when she did, you know what was next. The tears were never far behind. And we're good Americans, and so we all tried to avoid tears. And so people tried to redirect the conversation so she wouldn't be sad. We didn't let her lament death and loss. If we're going to have true healing, 
We need to be honest with the depth of the world's brokenness. We have to be willing to confess with our Lord that this is not how it's supposed to be. And to do that, we have to learn to lament. Lamenting doesn't deny hope. In fact, there's no reason to lament if you don't expect something better. You don't pray the same thing day after day unless you have hope, unless you expect something better. And so lamenting, far from denying hope, it it shows hope, not doubt. Psalm 88 invites you to learn how to lament. To acknowledge that you, beloved, were made for something better. And when you wonder if God would ever allow someone he loved to endure suffering like what is described in this psalm, remember that he did with Joseph. He did with Job. He did with David. And he did with his own son. And each one learned to cry out, this is not how things are supposed to be. Something's broken. Lord, bring healing. We Americans, (laughs) we're good at complaining, but not so good at lamenting. Lamenting... um, is different because complaining focuses on on us and our comfort. Lamenting focuses on God and his creation and his goodness. Uh, Complaining says, I deserve better. Uh, Lamenting says, God, you deserve better. Complaining sees only pain, your own pain. Lamenting sees the pain of others and all creation. And so we need to learn not to be so quick to to run from tears. And and perhaps that's why God will not allow the suffering of this world to ever be far from our eyes. Uh, We we experience it in our lives. We share it in the lives of others, as we we did this evening in prayer. We hear about it in, in the lives of those who have gone before us in God's word. We see it portrayed in the sacraments like we did this morning. But most most clearly, the most clear place you ever see suffering is, is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that Friday afternoon, our Lord was abandoned by his friends, abandoned by his Father. Darkness consumed him as the sun itself turned away. And then each Sunday we remember uniquely not just his death, but that our lives are tied up with his. And if the grave could not hold him, it cannot hold us. That darkness must be pushed back with the dawn of the resurrection. And as we await that day, we lament because only those with hope lament. Because we are confident that that if the darkness could not hold Jesus... It cannot hold us. So let us pray.
Father, you know that this world is not what it should be. You know its brokenness, you know its potential, and you know its need for restoration. And so you lament and you wait. And so we ask that you would teach us to lament and to wait, that you would teach us to weep deeply, weep deeply and patiently, that you would teach us to long for restoration, that we would lament more and complain less. Let us do so with hope. Let us do so with confidence, knowing that, that you are good and that you make all things right. Even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.